In March of 2001, Detective Tom Jensen submitted biological evidence of several victims of the Green River Killer. Come September, those vaginal swabs of Marsha Chapman were under the microscope for analysis. During the investigation into Gary Ridgway in 1987, one of the many items collected during a search warrant was a saliva sample. Well, thanks to advancement in DNA technology, what was once not enough to test, let alone compare, was now more than plenty, and the DNA profile of Chapman's vaginal swabs was the match to the saliva sample collected from Gary. They had their man, one that Sheriff David Reichert's gut feeling told him all along. Gary did have more to do with this case than he was letting on. Soon, DNA from Carol Christensen would match up with Gary Ridgway as well. Forensic scientist Jean C. Johnston was confident in her match, stating, quote, that no more than one individual in the entire world, with the exception of an identical twin, would exhibit this DNA profile, end quote. The case that had stumped investigators cost King County and the city of Seattle millions finally revealed the person responsible. Before a move would be made, Sheriff Reichert and the Green River Homicide Investigation Task Force that had gone away in the late 80s into the early 90s and now reformed. Before they could arrest their man, they needed an airtight case they would only have one shot at and you can't fuck up a one in a million chance like this. November 16, 2001, the urge to have sex with a sex worker and probably kill her became too strong for Gary to withstand, and he went out along Pacific Highway South to find the right one. Gary searched and searched until the right woman was there waiting for her next trick. Gary pulled over and asked for a date. The two agreed on some terms, and Gary agreed to drive ahead a little way so she could get in. Being a sex worker was taking its toll on these girls. The criminal charges that stem from solicitating sex for money was steep, and they couldn't afford to lose their time or money. So gone were the days of hopping in and driving away. Now you had to be discreet and meet up away from the main roadway before heading off to a secluded area to carry out those terms. What wasn't known was his perfect victim was an undercover police officer, and he was under arrest. During the booking, Gary asked that they not contact his wife, Judith, but instead contact the Green River Task Force, saying, quote, They know me real well. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we close an unprecedented case here, one that spanned nearly three decades and was the nurturing force of fear along Pacific Highway South in the early 80s, well into the 90s, when Gary would take his last victim in 1998. Gone were the days of covering his tracks and dumping in clusters. Gone were the days of hunting for weeks on end. Now he was older. He had a wife that he struggled to do right by. But the burning desire to have sex with sex workers and then kill them was not quite snuffed out. 
It was still there, smoldering, and occasionally springing to life until 2001, when Gary trusted the wrong sex worker, and then his will to survive and outsmart was completely extinguished, and what lay ahead would shoot him right to the top in the land of infamy, causing books, movies, documentaries, and even podcasts to say his name more than a million times and tell the story of his crimes a million and one. Gary Ridgway was ready to tell Sheriff Reichert just how right he was. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sex, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel as any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. The time has come. We are closing out probably the best season of TTCL so far. And that's because of all of you. You recommended the show like crazy. And for it, we've had record smashing moments this season. We have just a little bit to get to here tonight before we get started with the final episode in the hunt for the Green River Killer. Remember to be on the lookout for the announcement of Patreon launching, and this will help get you through those season breaks that we often take. Don't forget you can still make a contribution to the show by heading over to thetruecrimelibrarian.com and clicking on that donate button. No donation is too big or too small. You can also shop the merch store while there and pick yourself up some of your favorite podcasters gear and maybe something for the other nerds in your family to unwrap under the tree. If you'd like to help out the show but can't afford to donate because Christmas just emptied those pockets, well, just remember the librarian and TTCL, the next time someone asks for recommendations on a new podcast to check out. That helps grow the show, guaranteeing that I will be around for many seasons to come. So a little recap, Patreon, donating, recommending, oh, and I lost count and thought, tonight, 
we would be celebrating 50 episodes, but instead, tonight we're celebrating 51 episodes of TTCL. Since the launch of the show, each milestone baffles me more and more. Never had I thought that anyone would want to listen to me or the cases I covered and find them entertaining, but apparently... All of you weirdos love me being a weirdo and have accepted my goofiness and it's happened much more easier than I thought it would. For that, no, I love you all and I'm so thankful we have paths that have crossed. Now to what you all came here for, the true crime. Okay, so last week we covered the deaths of Kimberly Nelson and Lisa Yates, and then it seemed like all of Gary's hidden treasures began being unearthed, and it was like the world needed to tell all that it knew, and what had happened in the twists and turns of its mountainsides needing to be brought to life so that it could begin to heal, and the family of those hidden beneath the canopy of trees and under the soft soil it was time they knew the gravity of the Green River Killer and his capabilities. Well, as we worked our way through the timeline, I inadvertently skipped over two victims, and I advocate for these women like crazy. I'm here to tell you their story, not his, and I made an error in my timeline, and I got a little overzealous to talk about big name Ted Bundy. And so tonight we're going to hop back a couple months and start with victim number 42. Mary Exeta West. She was born March 6, 1967, and she was just 16, shy of her 17th birthday when Gary came into her life. More than turning a year older, something you couldn't see from just looking at her was she was three months pregnant. And this is not the first woman that Gary killed who was pregnant. Around 11 a.m., Mary was picked up, just like Kimberly and Lisa. Gary's overnight hours were starting to really play havoc on his hunting. Mary had been living with her aunt, and even though she turned to the streets to make money, it didn't mean that she lacked on the respect that she was taught. And she was very good about telling her aunt, I will be back at this time, and sticking to that. So when Mary went missing for more than a day, her aunt really began to worry. And when she didn't come home after two days, her aunt picked up the phone and called the police and reported her missing. This is something that we talked about last week with Bundy, and he was giving his profile of the Riverman, that some of these women went missing without anyone noticing. And that's true. So many of them were on bad terms with family or chose to not keep up with their family. So they went missing and were missing for such long periods of time because there was nobody looking for them. And that is why I advocate for victims like these women. Some of you see women who had no self-respect because they were selling themselves. And I see women who felt like they had no other options. They had no one to turn to. In the end, they had no one to fight for them. 
Victim number 43, her name is Cindy Ann Smith, and she was born in 1966. She had taken off to California to live with her boyfriend. But when things didn't go the way she thought they would, she called home and told her mother she was ready to come home. And honestly, her mother was ready to have her daughter back. So her mom bought her a plane ticket for a couple days out, and Cindy would be on her way from Cali to Seattle. While she was in Cali, Cindy had turned to dancing topless in some bars and even taken a date or two to make some extra money. Her mother knew of what knew of that when Cindy called home, but she had hoped since she was coming home, she was going to be walking away from that part of her life. Well, Cindy flew home March 21st, 1984, and she spent her first few hours in Seattle with her family. Then she left, saying she was going to apply for a job downtown at a topless bar along Pacific Highway South. That's all that her family knew. Cindy had not even unpacked her luggage. Cindy may have gone down and applied for that job, but apparently she decided at some point she really needed some extra cash and ended up accepting a date from Gary around 11 a.m. that morning. Gary's still working those overnight hours, which is meaning that we've gone from hunting under the cover of dark to hunting in broad daylight and hopefully the little cover he could have was everybody was at work. Unfortunately, Bridgeway couldn't really remember any of the details surrounding Cindy's murder, and all that he knew was he picked her up, he had sex with her, he killed her, he dumped her. Now, back in Florida, Reichert and Kebble were viewing their own personal shows starring none other than the legendary Ted Bundy. But what was initially thought as being an insight into their investigation back in Washington was quickly becoming nothing but a repeat over and over and over. If Keppel or Reichert ever presented body language that was consistent with being dissatisfied over what they were hearing or completely bored by Bundy and his venting, then Bundy would switch gears and try to offer a little bit more insight into the case. But in actuality, his insight was very limited. First of all, there wasn't much coverage going on in Florida of what was happening back in Washington. During that time, news didn't travel the way it does. It's not like the era of Stone Age or anything, but we have the power of the internet, and within minutes, we can get headlines that are breaking as they're happening. Well, it didn't kind of work that way, and even then, there was very limited as far as what the inmates were allowed to read, watch, whatever. So he really didn't know a whole lot about this case. But in his mind, he's thinking, if I speculate enough on the Rivermand, maybe I'll become a key part of the investigation and maybe they will do me a solid and ask for a stay and that way I can help them solve this case. Even though he did not want to play detective, in hindsight, that's exactly 
what he was doing. Going back now and kind of looking over what Bundy had to say, you really see how little he offered to the investigation of this case. Because most of his information was not new information. It was information they all had already known. So when Wendy Cofield, Deborah Bonner, Marsha Chapman, and Cynthia Hines were pulled from the waters of the Green River, the task force that form, they automatically trained their eyes on the river running parallel to Pacific Highway South. They were watching the banks of the river. They were watching bridges. They were watching every thing that had to do with this area. They wanted to know about the people coming and going. They surveillanced the shit out of this dump site, only to find that Gary stopped dumping there. And as quickly as the bodies appeared, they were disappearing. But women were still going missing. So this whole notion to stake out the dump site and find a bullshit, right? Because they did that. And the river man, Green River Killer, Gary, whatever you want to call him, he saw where their eyes were trained and he knew dump site's no good. I got to switch it up. And he was very good at being two steps ahead of them each and every time. The other problem was the dump sites were not being discovered as quickly as the river had been discovered and or were they being found in quick succession. So instead, it took by ha happenstance for them to be for like a dump site to be revealed. And by that point, the investigators were not recovering fresh bodies. They were recovering bodies that had been left to the elements and to the wildlife for weeks, months, and even years. So Bundy's rendition of stake at the dump site was quickly old and forgotten because they had already done it. So next up, the work of the Reverman. What did he do for financial living means? And Bundy said he did odd jobs and was mostly unemployable. Well, that was the thing. If you remember back to, I think, episodes one, two, and three, I kind of went over John Douglas's profile of who the Green River Killer was, and that came to way of the task force long before Bundy extended his olive branch from Florida. So we already kind of thought the man doing these killings doesn't have a steady job. He hops around job to job. He's constantly on unemployment or government assistance or whatever the hell you want to take that ass. In actuality, Gary was employable and had maintained being an employee for Kentworth Motors for nearly 20 years before Bundy inserted himself into the investigation. His shifts were changing, but not his employer. So that's a big thing. John Douglas, unfortunately, loved the man. Huge insight into the world of psychology and criminal minds. That sounded fucking weird saying that out loud. But 
there was an insight, there was a tie from the way the brain works to the actions of a person and we were seeing it come out in people. And so John was, he was a frontier man coming to this. Bundy was all he was doing. It's like going on the internet, seeing one, seeing a meme, thinking it's funny and then trying to pass it off as your own. That's exactly what he's doing. He's like, oh, but here's the other thing. Bundy didn't really have access to Douglas's profile either because that profile was like the holy grail, super guarded, didn't release that out to like the media or anything until well after the case had gone cold. And then by that time, Bundy, he was also cold. So it wasn't like he knew he was just repeating what John said. He literally thought he was offering something insightful, something that would help kind of narrow down their field of suspects. They had several people on that list. Gary was one of them. So was Melvin. I mean, they had several men who topped the list of possible Green River killers. Some of them were what Bundy said, saying they were unemployable, saying, you know, they had all these different aspects about them. They were in their 30s, never married, whatever. But none of them fit perfectly. They were all a square peg trying to go into a round hole. So Gary, like I said, couldn't be further from some of the things that was said in the profiles from both John and Bundy. And other points really hit the nail on the head. So, what was Bundy offering? Nothing, really. His insights were off. And he was not very good at playing detective. Bundy really would start getting hung up on dates and times in the investigation into the Green River Killer, which if that's who you are, like if you want exact moments, and you're not going to get that with this case. Most of these women, the day they were last seen alive is the date listed of death for them. Why? Because the way they were dumped, the way they were exposed to wildlife, the weather, speeding up, slowing down, decaying process, the ME wasn't going to come in and be like, they died January 5th, 1982. It's not going to happen because the last time they were seen could have been weeks ago, but the remains that we're finding are nothing but bones. The decay process does not happen that quickly, even when you don't prepare the body. However, if unfortunately, uh, wildlife aids in that process, you're looking at a sped up decomposition. Well, you take out what is necessary to declare time of death, how long they had been dead. So Bundy getting hung up on these dates and times, really a bad thing because they were almost never accurate. 
I will hand it to some of these women's pimps. They may not have knew what day the girls went missing, but they could tell them the time of day. Why? Because the pimps knew when each girl was going and working the strips and doing what they needed to do because those women are his money makers. The finding of these women and then retracing steps that were taking long before was difficult. And most, like I said, the date they were last seen is listed as their date of death. Sometimes when their bodies were found, they offered the right set of circumstances and maybe possibly you could estimate time of death. But for a lot of them, Mother Nature knows no laws and pinpointing it's a mere guessing game during this case here's the other thing with Bundy he labeled Gary as never being married before but you I and the people listening around you they all know that's not true by this point Gary had been married not once but twice and he really amped up killing he says he was killing prior to his first victim in July, on July 8th of 1982. He says he committed his first murder prior to that, which would mean that it was either during or prior to the marriage of his second wife. However, whatever happened during their separation and divorce process, I am convinced is what pushed him over the edge to really sink his teeth into becoming who he is in infamy. So him not being married or, or being socially awkward to the point that he doesn't, mm, you're wrong, right? The first wife confirmed that. So here's the thing. Labeling him, labeling Gary as never being married before really pushes that ideation that he had a very strong attachment to his mother. And that's true. Second wife was able to identify a lot of the dumping sites as places they had been during their time together. But the first wife confirmed how close Gary was with his mother, even though his mother was completely overbearing and, and very dominating, Gary still had this hidden need for approval. And so his mother very much controlled the Gary and his first wife in their life. There goes that possible stressor or, you know, possible possible push as to becoming a murderer is when a mother is extremely overbearing. Well, this just fuels that fire of stereotyping. Past these points, Bundy never really offered a complete left-field insight nailing the man he dubbed the river man. He was doing what he knew best, and that's stalling. Bundy stalled every single time he was arrested and charged over the years. He stalled the trial in Florida, even marrying his wife in the midst of her questioning on the stand. He stalled by slowly leaking victims and their names and locations that had not been linked to him yet. And now he was using the Green River Task Force and playing detective in this very high profile case from his hometown. In the end, 
Bundy didn't become that vital asset to the task force. And so postponing his execution, it didn't happen as he had hoped it would. We're going to run through quite a few points now because in between all of this, as Gary's taking these longer periods of downtime, we're finding more and more bodies in dump sites. On March 10th of 1984, the remains of Carrie Ann Royce were found about 50 yards from Star Lake Road and only 25 yards downhill from where Sandra Gabbert's remains were found. On June 12th of 1985, the remains of Denise Bush's skull were found in Tigard, Oregon, and it was just the top part. Missing was the mandible and her, the rest of her body. On June 14th, 1985, Shirley Sherrill's remains were found, including her skull, near where Denise Bush's skull was found in Tigard. And that's important that I point out that her skull was found because there was speculation that Denise's skull was actually Shirley's. And it's not true because they did recover Shirley's and then they still had Denise's or a leftover head. On September 8th of 1985, Mary West's remains were discovered by a teacher who had her class out on a field trip at Seaward Park, and she happened to stumble upon the skull of Mary. Mary's body would later be located near the base of a very large fir tree. Unfortunately, there was no clothing or any other items found with her remains. On December 30th, 1985, when the task force returned to Mountain View Cemetery, where Kimi Kai's remains were located just two years prior, a car had gone off the roadway on December 30th and crashed, and a caretaker at the cemetery went to go and check out the wreckage, and when doing so, he happened upon Sandra Major's remains. Sandra would be labeled as Jane Doe B-17, and she would remain unidentified until April of 2012 when a family member was ironically watching a documentary of the Green River Killer and recognized the rendering of what Jane Doe B-17 was thought to look like. In turn, they were able to identify Sandra. On January 2nd, 1986, as investigators were searching the area where they found Sandra, Sandra Major's remains, they also happened upon Jane Doe B-17, who you saw a couple episodes ago. We talked about her, and there's very little known about who B-17 is, and she still remains unidentified to this day. You can find the rendering of Jane Doe B-17 on my Facebook and Instagram page. If you happen to recognize the face, please contact King County Sheriff's Office, and I'm sure they would be happy to hear from someone that can help bring justice to this woman and her family. On March 27, 1986, the remains of Tracy Winston were found in Cottonwood Park in Kent, Washington. This is just a small piece of land off the bank of the Green River. and is about a quarter mile away from Peck Bridge where Wendy Cofield's body had been found floating in the river. So 
Gary had returned to the Green River once he felt like he could dispose of a body safely. But much like Opal Mills, he didn't dump the body into the river. He left it along the embankment. On March 2nd, 1986, the remains of Maureen Feeney were discovered. An employee at the Echo Glen Juvenile Detention Center was out looking for an escapee when they came across Maureen's remains on the west side of Highway 18 at 105th, south of the intersection, Highway 18 and Interstate 90. Her remains had been scattered and investigators had to search diligently to recover as many bones as possible. On June 14, 1986, Kimberly Nelson's remains were discovered. Her skull and a few bones were recovered from the deeply wooded area off I-90 and exit 38. This is where Kim Nelson and Delise Plager's remains had been discovered just two years prior. Victim number 44 is Patricia Patty Michelle Barzark. Barksark. Bazark. I probably butchered that last name and I'm sorry. I did have um, software pronounce it to me, but honestly, I get a little tongue tied with that last name. She was born May 7th, 1967, and she was just 19 years old when she would meet Gary and go missing. But Patty had trouble long before she met Gary with men in her life. She had been dating just prior to her death a man, and he led her to believe that he was this insanely rich man with a very lucrative career working for the Millionaire's Club. But in reality, it wasn't the Millionaire's Club, the, the social scene. It was the Millionaire's Club minus the E on Millionaire. And this was the only point that would show that it is actually a shelter for those who are down and out on their luck. So he wasn't some lucrative businessman making money and, and playing 18 holes of golf and doing business out on the greens. No. He was a man looking to pull the wool over a sheep's eyes and take complete advantage. And he found someone in Patty. But by the time she figured out his entire little white lie, he had already moved into her place for the most part. He was there staying. Now, whether he was actually a resident and put on the lease or whatever, I don't know. I would say he's probably more like a squatter. Because he proved to be harder to get rid of than trying to evict squatters. And I don't know what squatters' rights look like everywhere. But here it can take like three or four months before you can serve eviction papers to those squatting on property illegally. Patty had just graduated from culinary school. And she was very excited to get to start her new career. But somehow or another, I don't know... The complete circumstances around what was going on, but she used sex work to pad her pocketbook and she would pull few dates here and there. I not, I don't have any information that is shows that she hooked up with a pimp or anything like that. I think she was doing it on her own. And from what I can tell, her family was none the wiser to those risky 
um, to the risky way she made money. Mom knew she had a really shitty boyfriend who had completely lied to her, and she knew that her daughter Patty was taking advantage of friends who offered up their couch to her so that she would not have to go home and deal with this con artist ex who she was having a hard time getting to move out of her home. Not to mention the less time she actually had to interact with him, the less likely he was to coerce her into changing her mind or whatever. Limiting their interaction was key to her survival after this piece of crap. Patty would later become known to many in the true crime world as the SR, SIR lady or the Seattle International Raceway lady. On October 17, 1986, just two and a half years after Cindy Smith went missing, and I point these out because towards the middle of this case, we were seeing like 42, 72 hours in between killings, there wasn't a whole lot of time going on from one girl going missing to another one. But now you can see that we're having years go on because at this point, Gary's dating Judith and Judith is living at home. So his urge to Murder had to take a backseat to his relationship with his soon-to-be third wife. And many speculate that Gary was willing to make the changes for Judith because he wanted to be a better man. He wanted to be a good Christian man for her. Now, Judith was just a bit older than Gary, not much, but the love she had for him was completely unfazed by something as trivial as their age. She would move in with Gary during their time dating, and the two would live like husband and wife without that piece of paper saying they had those titles. And with Judith in the house, this took away from Gary's perfect place to take a date. How could he kill with Judith being in the next room? You know what I'm saying? So it really kind of took that out of the equation. And Gary was not much of a risk taker. Once he had an available residence that he could take these women back to, that was the only place he really wanted to take a date because he could do whatever he wanted to, sex, whatever. Then he could kill him and there would be nobody around to see. And if you're lucky... Her screams wouldn't escape the four walls of your, you know, that make up the outside walls of your home. So not having that really meant that he would have to take some big risk when he went to go out and kill. So that also aided in the fact that he was having such long periods in between women going missing. At this point, Gary is working swing shift again, and he didn't have to report to work on October 17th until real late in the day. Gary picked up Patty. He took her to Highway 18 between mile marker 8 and 9, and he dumped her. It's believed that the two did have sex prior to him killing her. She becomes known as the SR. SIR lady because this is the point where people would access Seattle International Raceway 
by sneaking in. And Patty's remains would be there for a couple years before somebody stumbled upon them. Patty was never one of the official 49 victims that were labeled Green River victims. Gary would voluntarily admit to her murder during his time being interviewed in accordance to his plea deal. We're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsors and we'll be right back. Thank you for sticking around, everybody. Now we're going to jump into some more of the timeline and, and some more discovery of the bodies. Victim number 45 is Roberta Joseph Hayes. She was born June 9th, 1967, and she was just shy of her 19th birthday when she would meet Gary and go missing. Roberta was known as Bobby Joe to her family. She was raised by her father and stepmother, but from a very early age, she began stepping out on her own. She ran away from responsibilities that fell to her either by way of chores or by being like a built-in babysitter. You know how you are. The older siblings tend to look after the younger ones when mom or dad couldn't be home. At the age of 12, Bobby Jo took off from her dad's house, and those who knew her were concerned because around family, she was very gullible, very trusting, except in the way of trusting and knowing that they loved her. That, for whatever reason, was a very huge block in her mind. She could trust them. You, she could, you know, you, dad could go in there and say the sky's purple, and she'd be like, well, that's really cool. What color purple? You know, she would totally go for it. But when he say, I love you, she was very skeptical that he meant it. And that's a little hard to hear, especially about somebody so young. But because of that, she began making it through life by working on the streets. The thought of caring for anyone besides herself would be highly ironic as she would become pregnant with her first child at the age of 15 and she would go on to have four more children over the next six years, all of which she would turn over to the state so that they could be adopted. I must say that no matter your stance on the right to choose, you have to realize a good decision when you see one. Bobby Joe was clearly not capable of being a mother. She wandered the streets. She stayed in motels or with friends. Her line of work was dating, using air quotes here, men. None of that equaled up to her being capable of raising another human being. Not to mention the whole reason she was doing what she was doing is so she didn't have to be the live-in babysitter at her dad's house. Also, point this out, quick side note, do not spark up a debate of pro-life or not on Facebook, on YouTube, on anywhere. I don't typically drop politics into my podcast and we're not going to start today. Whatever your opinion and wherever you stand, stand your ground. Have faith in it and have the knowledge to know that at no point did I attack your opinion. I love you all and I'm just not going to lose you because of something as silly as political debates. Just acknowledge a good decision when you see one. 
The last time Bobby Joe was seen alive is when she was being released from police custody in Portland, Oregon. Now, we know that Gary was known to spread out his victim's remains, and it isn't unheard of that he could drive to Portland to pick up a victim, especially if he's fighting this side of himself so that he can be a better man, human, for his soon-to-be new wife. But it's not unheard of. And let's also realize that Bobby Joe was more than capable of making her way back to Seattle as well. She managed to go from Seattle to go work in Portland to work in Sacramento and back. So even though in life with her family, she was this naive, trusting person, on the streets, she seemed to be far smarter, regardless of what she had done, who she had done it with, or where Meeting Gary and trusting him said more about her personality of who she was on the streets than it did about her personality when she was around those she could open-heartedly trust that they wouldn't that they wouldn't put her in harm's way. Gary dated Bobby Joe and then he dumped her on Highway 410. She was the only victim on the north side of 410. Bobby Joe was not part of the official victim list until during the interview process with Gary, where he would admit to killing her. On June 27, 1988, the remains of Cindy Smith were discovered by two kids who were playing in the ditch alongside Southeast 312th Way. It was on the road leading to the Green River Community College, and these two kids were poking bags of garbage when one of them that they had poked Cindy's skull rolled out of. Investigators would recover the rest of her remains that had been placed under a large piece of wood believed to be a door or something very similar, and Gary would admit to putting her underneath that. On May 30th, 1988, the remains of Deborah Estes were discovered when two construction workers were digging holes for new playground equipment. She was buried in a shallow grave uh, in Federal Way, and she had been buried with two items of clothing, a bra and fragments of a black knit sweater with metallic threads. An acquaintance of Deborah would confirm that the sweater she was wearing on the night she disappeared was a black knit sweater. On June 12, 1988, Gary married his third wife, Judith. The two would be married for 14 years until Gary's arrest, where Judith would file for separation at first, hoping to separate herself from what was going on with her husband to eventually having the divorce um, granted in 2002, nearly a year being a part of the nightmare he created. On October 11, 1989, Andrea Childers' remains were discovered at the South Airport site where six years earlier the remains of Mary Meehan, Constance Known, and Kelly Ware were found. Andrea's remains were mostly intact as the shelter of a car fender protected her from being scattered by wildlife and the elements. She was found face down with her legs spread wide. On February 1990, Denise Bush's mandible and shunt were located in Tukwila, Oregon. 
This helped to identify her skull that had been found five years earlier in 1985. That shunt was something that helped them identify Denise because that is something she underwent early on in her life and had to have placed so that it could drain excess cerebral fluid. Victim number 46 is Marta Reeves, and she was born in 1953 in Hungary. To date, she is Gary's oldest victim as far as where we're at in the timeline. Marta had settled in Seattle with her husband and children, but she had become estranged from her husband and four children when she developed a very serious addiction to cocaine, and it seems as though her husband kicked her out when he he couldn't get her to give it up. In order to feed her addiction, she began selling her body on the strip. On March 5th of 1990, Marta called her husband. She was looking for some money and her husband told her no. And she was whining and complaining, and complaining that she was going to have to work all night long to make whatever that amount of money was. Well, Gary picked Marta up that night and the two dated. Then he killed her and dumped her on 410 at mile marker 33. Her remains were less than 200 yards from that marker. And when I say mile markers, you've all seen them as you're going down the road. It's just a random sign that has a number on it. These help identify locations for emergency personnel for first responders, um, even for those who have broke down on the side of the road. It really helps around when there's nothing else. There's no other landmarks. So when I say that, I'm saying these are up in an area that is not heavily populated of King County. In April of 1990, Marta's husband received her state identification card in the mail. Almost like someone was trying to tell him his wife was not okay. In the interviews, one of the stipulations was that he would have to tell the truth and answer questions truthfully. And this was one of them. They asked if he mailed back her identification card and Gary said he had. And then when they asked why, and he was like, I'm not really sure why I did it to tell him, you know, that she was gone. I don't you know, there wasn't a clear answer as to why he did that. And just PSA, if you did not know, if you find somebody's driver's license or ID card, you can just drop it in a mail slot at the post office or the little blue mail things around town. And the post office will return them to their, to their owner free of charge. So you don't ever have to worry about not being able to have the money to get it back to them it's already taken care of. Marta's husband took her identification card and showed it around town trying to find her because he took it as a sign that she was not okay. And when he couldn't find anybody who had seen her recently, he became concerned and reported her missing on April 13, 1990. Gary had managed to go just over three years between Bobby, Joe, and Marta. The relation does not go unseen with the new marriage in 88 and him struggling daily to overcome who he is before his wife came into his life. 
And this is very interesting when you're looking at this case because he's struggling to make a change. He's struggling to be a better person. But once he let that beast out of him and, and gave it the attention it wanted when it wanted to know what it was going to feel like to stab somebody and him trying to change later in life adds fuel to the great debate. Are serial killers born that way or is it a learned behavior? And I think this gives more to the side of being born that way because Gary is actively trying to change his thoughts, change his actions, change that whole dark side of him to be somebody better for his third wife. If you have not picked up, he was highly in love with Judith and Judith was in love with him prior to knowing. And I don't, something like this would be very easy to come in and just flip that switch off at you no longer being in love with the person you had been for the last 15 years. It's very understandable. But with Gary and him actively trying to be somebody better, somebody who was good, and then you have somebody like Dennis who he didn't kill because he didn't have the time to devote to hunting. Because the way Dennis hunted, he needed to set back, he needed to watch his victim, and he needed to learn everything he could. When did they leave to go to work? When did they get home from work? Um, how often do they have visitors? Things like that. So that takes a lot of extra time that Dennis just did not have later in life when he would go so long without killing. Life just consumed him. Where Gary, he hunted on the drop of a dime. If he woke up and said, eh, I feel like killing somebody today, he could get in his car, drive five minutes up the road to Pacific Highway South and have this pool of sex workers up and down the street and he could pick any of them. He didn't have to step back. He didn't have to watch. So where one couldn't because there was not the time and where one actively tried to change that part of them, you have to wonder what it is about them that was born with them when they came into this world. And so can that person then be groomed? in an environment that would cause them to turn to being a murderer versus a person being capable of being a murderer. Here's the thing about all of these people. There is something in each one of their backgrounds and it created this perfect little cocktail that allowed them to grow into being a murderer. When you look at Bundy and, and Ridgeway and Raider and Dahmer, they were born with something and then things occurred in life that at the right time with the right amount of stressors, it created the men that we know in infamy. And then there are people out there who were born with the same characteristics and could have become a serial killer, but for whatever reason, they did not. Okay. So you're, you're like, well, we all have shitty backgrounds and you're right. Everybody has tough moments in their life, but the difference is the perception of those tough moments by each person individually. 
What was hard for one, but able to be overcome, is completely debilitating to another. And overcoming isn't possible when it just crushes you. So you have to apply this logic to every part of life. So those of you who are sitting in your car and you're currently saying, you know, F you, Ashley, because we all have crap in our childhood and we all, you know, we don't all go out and kill. You're exactly right. But think about this. How many times do you encounter a person who has a bad mood, who has a sour mood, who just kind of bites your head off and you don't retaliate, you don't verbally engage with them because you think they must be having a bad day? right? So now how many times do you account a person in their bad mood and they kind of snap at you and you account that to the person just being an asshole, right? So most people, especially with the magic of social media practice, don't judge somebody by their attitude. You don't know what they're going through in their personal life, right? Well, same freaking concept, except we're going to take some details out and add some other details in. Two people born with characteristics to become a mass murderer. One has a crappy childhood, an overbearing mother, can't seem to get past wetting the bed, even as they age. And it's just all around just shitty. Their love life's falling apart. Everything seems to be going wrong for them. And then they snap. And then they just start killing people, right? The other person, capable, born with those characteristics, has the same kind of background. But for whatever reason, they were taught certain measures to cope with those moments that are tough in life and they were able to overcome them and never go on to actually taking somebody's life but are still highly capable of it right so it's the same thing as oh you bit my head off because you're having a bad day or oh you bit my head off because you're an asshole you just are replacing some of these things that's how you have to look at these don't look at these closed-minded and be like we all go through shit, but none of us, you know what I'm saying? Don't do that. Look at this and look at how those tough moments were perceived, how they stacked up some of them in quick succession. So that means that's a lot of stress at one time. And if you're not coping with stressor number one and you're at stressor number 20, shit's just snowballing at this point. Okay. So is it People are born with the characteristics to become somebody who can take another's life, or is it learned behavior? The great debate, right? On September 20th of 1990, the remains of Marta Reeves were discovered by a couple that were out mushroom picking along Highway 410. Her remains were 600 feet south of mile marker 33. Unfortunately, Marta would not be identified until January of 1991. On September 11th, 1991, the remains of Roberta or Bobby Joe Hayes were discovered. A Washington State Police, a Washington State Parks employee discovered Bobby Joe at the end of a dead-end dirt road located north of Highway 410 between mile markers 36 and 37. 
Now, employees of a nearby factory said that sometime in between September of 86 and April of 87, the roadway became blocked by boulders. This helped identify who was there and who and what time she was last seen. It was Bobby and Joe. And so we know the last time that she had been seen alive was February 7th of 1987, prior to the April 87 estimate from these factory workers. On February 3rd, 1993, the remains of Patty Bazark, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this, were discovered and a road worker had found her skull just off of Highway 18 between mile markers 8 and 9. Victim number 47, and the last one that we are going to discuss in the case of the Green River Killer is Patricia Yellowrobe. She was born April 7th, 1960, and she would become the oldest official victim of Gary. Trish, as she was known to most, struggled much of her life with addiction between drugs and alcohol. And as a result, she turned to selling herself. This allowed her to feed her habit. And she didn't have to go and work nine to five doing work she didn't want to do and live day to day knowing that at any moment the rug could be pulled out from underneath her feet. She could lose her, her job due to what she was doing as far as her recreational habits were concerned. Trish was fun and she tried to live life that way. Shortly before her life ended, she was sitting with her sister and the two were talking and Trish told her sister she had a dream, one that she had not had until recently. She was wanting to get herself clean. She wanted to find a boring to nine to five job. She wanted the house, the family. She, she was just, she had matured to a point where she was ready for everything that everybody else seemingly had and she believed because she was at that point where she wanted to have it that she could do it and she was getting too old really for living this lifestyle off the streets and it was just time for her to make a change on the morning of august 6 1998 Eight, eight years since the city saw a Green River killer victim, 10 years since the disbandment of the task force, and nearly 10 since, the, since another well-known serial killer offered his help. The owner of the All-City Wrecking Company on Des Moines Way South went to open up after being closed for nearly a day and a half when he found Patricia's body just outside the fence on the east side of the tow yard in a gravel parking lot west of an entrance ramp to southbound lanes of Highway 99. That's a lot of landmarks right there to kind of pinpoint where Patricia had been found. Trish was fully clothed and the medical examiner performed her autopsy. They did take swabs of her vaginal, anal, and oral orifices. There was insufficient amount of sperm to obtain any kind of DNA profile. 
her blood was tested and she tested positive for high amounts of alcohol and controlled substances. Therefore, her death was listed as such, quote, the cause of death is acute combined opiate and ethanol intoxication. The circumstances seen investigation and post-mortem examination, which did not reveal evidence of significant injury, indicate that the manner of death is probable accident, end quote. Patricia was never listed as a potential victim of Gary Ridgway until his interviews when he confessed to killing her. And in hindsight, when they went back to look at the autopsy, they said it was highly plausible that she died of strangulation without there being any kind of injury to the neck. This season seems to be a lot of cases that an injury to the neck has occurred. And I am referencing to Amanda Winkowski's case. She had significant damage to her neck and they listed her death as acute opioid overdose with no positive six monoacetylmorphine in her system. There was none. But here we have high amounts of that and, and high amounts of alcohol and we're listing this death as an accident due to those when in actuality she was strangled and left right where she died. Gary says that the two, he picked up Trish, the two agreed on the terms of the date, they were having sex, he was apparently not um, coming up to the end fast enough for her and so she just decided to, that she was done. This pissed Gary off, but he never had an opportunity to be actually behind Trish. So this is how she ended up dead with full, full clothes. They stopped. She put her clothes back on. Gary got pissed. He went to open the door so that she could get back in his truck. And he was mad. He's, he didn't get to finish. So he was not going to pay for it. And he strangled her right then and there. And then he didn't take time to dump her body or nothing. He just left her. But this proved to be beneficial to him because she was not listed as an official Green River killer until the interviews later. On December 5th, 2001, King County Prosecuting Attorney charged Gary Leon Ridgway with four counts of aggravated murder in the first degree for the deaths of Carol Christensen, Cynthia Hines, Marcia Chapman, 
and opal mills. Three of the four had DNA profiles developed from DNA left over from someone other than the victim. Each profile was exclusive to Gary Ridgway. A turn would happen in this investigation that would open Pandora's box. On April 15, 2002, King County Prosecuting Attorney announced that the state of Washington would be seeking the death penalty against Gary Ridgway. The next year would prove to be fruitful as they prepared its case against the defendant. They were also cross-matching and trying to link him to victims they believed to be of the Green River Killer. In the great country of the United States of America, you have a right to a speedy trial. And with a victim list as extensive as that of the Green River Killer, the King County Superior Courts declared a deadline for charging Gary with any more counts of murder, which was March 28, 2003 just a little over a year from the announcement of the death penalty. Investigators and forensic teams would realize that most of the victims had something pointing right back to Gary. Even if there wasn't a DNA profile to match, paint spheres, paint spheres that were indicative to the paint used at Kentworth Motors, paint spheres that pointed right back to Gary Ridgway. Come April 2003, the rebanded task force and King County District Attorney's Office completed the review of all potential cases linked to the Green River Killer. Even with testing performed by many different laboratories across the United States, there was little to learn in way of the DNA. So far, it seemed as though everything was circumstantial. There were 42 uncharged cases that were potential victims of the Green River Killer, but securing a conviction was going to be difficult. Gary was now facing seven charges of aggravated first-degree murder, not even a fraction of the Green River killings. Shortly following the arraignment and amendment of charges, Gary's attorneys reached out to King County Prosecuting Attorney, asking Would the prosecution be willing to forego seeking the death penalty against Gary in exchange for pleas of guilty to the charge counts and a number of additional cases? Meaning, Gary was willing to not only plead guilty to the seven charges now pending against him, but he was going to plead guilty to a possible 47 more counts of murder. Do you turn it down and prosecute for the seven that are almost guaranteed guilty convictions, win the death penalty, and then watch him die of old age before he can exhaust his appeals? Or do you take the deal and close out an unprecedented amount of cold cases and find justice for more than just seven victims? On June 13, 2003, King County prosecuting attorney agreed to the plea deal being offered by Ridgeway's defense attorneys. But there were stipulations of his own to add. Gary would be completely truthful and candid with information concerning his crimes in King County. He would answer all questions during the interviews conducted by the police and the prosecuting attorney. Ridgway agreed to disclose the existence and precise locations of all undiscovered physical remains of his victims. This was the interview process of the century. 
I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we close out the hunt for the Green River Killer and for Season 3 of TTCL. It's been a hell of a ride this season with some very interesting cases coming across the librarian's desk. I'm so happy to be at this point and sad all at the same time. But know that I'll be back in January to kick off Season 4 with a case that was making headlines this fall. Be sure to follow me on social media so that you can stay up to date with The Librarian and the show. We will cover topics making headlines over in the discussion group of Facebook, so don't forget to join in on that. And I want to wish you all a very happy holiday season from my family to yours. And I can't wait to see you all real soon. Remember, I always have something up my sleeve. As always, I leave you with one last line. Let go of the past, but hold on to the lessons it taught you. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>